Yeah, old Robert got caught singing a solo there. That's pretty good if you got a solo voice. If I did that, everybody would be laughing, rolling the floor. Ha, 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 I caught you. One of the cruelest tricks I ever heard was one of my friends who has a voice as bad as, bad as my, uh, mine is. Uh, the sound man played a trick on him, and they had some sort of reception for him, and they played back videos where he was singing, and he didn't have his microphone off. <laughs> it was just awful. It made the, made the dogs howl. It was terrible. Now, when Robert gets called singing solo, it's fine. That hymn, by the way, which I could tell was one of your favorites, <laughs> is a great hymn. And uh, we need to learn it, and it's based on the text that we're reading today. That's the reason we sang it. But we sang it also because it's a great one. And in case you felt like it was too long, there are actually, in the original version, 14 stanzas to that hymn. <laughs> we only sang six of them, so we picked out the six best ones for you this morning. And so uh, you might want to look that one up for all the saints who from their labors rest, uh, who thee by faith before the world confess, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It's a wonderful hymn. Well, it's good to have all you Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Catholics, Orthodox, Jews, and anything else that straggled in the door this morning. Uh, glad to have you here. You know, I was uh, reminded at the table this morning that I'm an old Baptist. And you know, the difference between a Baptist and an Episcopalian is that when you go to the liquor store, the Episcopalian will wave at you. And that's the difference. Okay. Some people just aren't real friendly in the liquor store. I don't know why that is. We are looking at uh, Revelation, and uh, we've gotten ourselves now one week. Of, we're officially now one full week behind. Aren't you proud of us? And uh, we're going to get caught up next week because what we're finishing today all kind of hangs together. If you remember our basic outline, the brief outline of Revelation, is that we're right here in chapters 12 through 14. We're going to dip into 15 today. But basically we're talking about this interim period, which is what all of chapter 4 through 19 is about, we believe. But we're focused, uh, we've been focused on those 144,000 who are enduring the 1260 days. The church, which is enduring the period between the, the advents of Jesus Christ, first and second advent. And some say there's seven uh, special events that happen in those three chapters. But what we've seen uh, overall is that <clears throat> these three chapters here, once again, Jesus walking among the lampstands, then the seven seals, the seven trumpets, this uh, special section we're studying now. And then next week we're going to look at the seven angels and pouring their seven bowls of wrath. We'll see the intensity of wickedness, the intensity of God's judgment as, uh, as John goes through the revelation. And then we're going to pick up uh, in two weeks, we're going to start closing out. We're going to have this, uh, we're going to see Babylon symbolized by the, the whore on the beast and uh, God's triumph over that and what that means in today's world. And then we'll look at the new Jerusalem at the end. So we're getting toward the end of Revelation here in just a couple of weeks. Now, as we look at chapters 12 through 14, let's look at it this way. First of all, let me just put this all up here so we can see it. Basically, in, in three parts, which are roughly the three chapters involved. Chapter 12, you remember, is Christ gaining victory over the dragon who tried to destroy him. And then the dragon tried to destroy the church. But Christ uh, not only spares himself, but he protects the church. Chapter 12, you remember that. Chapter 13, we see the dragon's helpers come, come out. The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. 
Christ also conquers those helpers. And we saw at the beginning of chapter 14, that's where we left off last time, that the saints are reigning with Christ on Zion. So for all the efforts of the dragon and the beast, they cannot destroy the church who is happily uh, in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, living a life that approximates his life, living a life that imitates his life, living a life that is increasingly conformed to his likeness. Now today we're going to look at Christ's final judgments, which vindicate the believer. So the believer is spared while all this chaos is going on, while all these evil agents are trying to destroy us, God is preserving us, and then he's going to exercise his final judgment, and we're going to be looking on, beholding the great judgment of God, which will ultimately and finally vindicate us uh, in, uh, for all eternity. So that's a great encouragement to the church and very important for us to master because we're not going to be able to live for him unless we are assured how things are going to come out in the end. That's the reason that Revelation is so important for us. We need to understand its major themes and thrusts because for us to live properly, we've got to have a sense of what we call Christian ascendancy, rising over uh, the mere circumstances of this present world. We're aliens. We belong to another world. We're going to another place. Our home is in another location. And so we're here as aliens. That's the only way we can live triumphantly in this world. It's the only way we can live successfully for Christ in this world. So we need to have in mind already the vindication that is ours from the end time. So Christians are people who bring the future into the present in their own thinking. We're not just thinking about the future. We're actually bringing the future into the present. Our very lives are a representation of the future brought into the present. And actually that's what gets us in trouble sometimes because those around us who are not believers don't like to think about the future. Well, you represent the future. Uh, and there's a mystical way in which that takes place. So Revelation is our book and for our edification. Now, last time uh, we, we saw that God's faithful flourish. That was the end of that second section. God's faithful flourish. And we saw that they fellowship with the Lamb. They stand with Him. They're sealed by Him. They sing to Him. They're His people. They belong to Him. They are, they're owned by Him. They're kept by Him. It's a wonderful place to be. And then we saw that these are people who follow the Lamb. They have fellowship with Him and they become like Him. So if Jesus Christ has died for your sins and delivered you from the burden of them, He has also changed your heart. Both of those things happen when you come to Christ. So if He has not in any way changed your heart, then His atonement has also not been applied to your life. In other words, if your heart's not being changed, your sins are not forgiven either. Why? Because we know when your sins are forgiven, Jesus Christ also gives you new life at the same time, which enables you then uh, to be motivated by His work on your behalf, making you want to live a different kind of life. So if, that, if you don't sense any desire for a new kind of life, then, of course, you ought to question whether you've really received the gift of His forgiveness. Because that gift comes with the new birth. So we've seen then that not only are we His people and sealed by Him, which is what He does for us, but He does something in us. So there's the cross of Jesus Christ and there's the cross of the Christian. There's what God has done for us in Christ, what God has done in us in Christ changing our lives. And we saw that clearly in John's vision. These people had a different sexual ethic from the sexual ethic around them. It was starkly different. It made them look weird. 
And more and more now we're seeing that if we follow the sexual ethic of the Bible, we're weird. We're fundamentalists. We're narrow-minded. We're exclusive. All the rest of these uh, adjectives that are used now for people who follow the Christian sexual ethic. And what's so discouraging is even in the church, we find such a massive confusion among young adults about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And it seems as though this sexual ethic is just a quaint, older Victorian principle that we used to live by by, in our grandparents' lifestyle. But the Bible said, no, this is the way saints behave. Saints of all ages. Why? Because their sexual life reflects our theology. God is faithful in the covenant, and therefore, and He's intimate in the covenant, and therefore our intimacy is also in the marriage covenant. So sexual ethics have always followed theology, whether it was pagan or Christian. Uh, it always follows one's theology. So we see how important that is. And then we, we walk in His steps. Uh, and we also, we are the first fruits of the sacrifice. We are, we're offering our lives as living sacrifices. Our speech is different. We no longer get ahead by lying. We no longer flatter. We no longer deceive people. Do we? <laughs> yeah, we're not supposed to, though. The trajectory of our lives is that our lips now are to be used for truth. Why? Because we are saved by the truth. Why? Because God is truth. Our speech reflects our theology. And you know as well as I do that the loudest sermon you're going to preach today is the way you live your life wherever you're going, in the marketplace. And people probably, you know, most of you here are Christians probably. People probably know that where you're going. And they're looking at your lifestyle and they know whether you're being hypocritical or not. So our lips are used for truth and the only time you can really find out whether you're committed to truth is when, it, when the truth is going to hurt you. And that's when the truth really counts. And it's so sad. You look in the court cases today, and the first thing you're told to do if you're a criminal or if you're being uh, sued in a civil suit, first thing you're told is don't say, don't talk, don't tell the truth. And people get up and think they can just spin themselves right out of, of some sort of judgment. And oftentimes they do. Gentlemen, that does not justify a lie. The fact that a lie works doesn't justify it. Why? Because the saints realize they're living on Mount Zion with their king. And he knows their hearts. He knows reality. He knows their speech. And they live an open life because their life is openly examined by the Lamb of God. So why do they want to entertain you or image manage before you? They're living in the presence of God. In Coram Deo, they're living in the presence of God. Before the face of God. That's what saints are doing. They're living their lives as they would clearly knowing that God is walking right next to them. I've often said to premarital couples, now, here's the way you should live your sex life before you get married. Every time you go on a date, just imagine Billy Graham's on the date with you. How would that have changed your day life? How would that change your married life? But the fact is, you have someone with you that makes Billy Graham look like a piece of dirt. You have Jesus Christ living with you. And he's not to be grieved by your trying to get ahead or get yourself out of trouble by using your lips to deceive other people. And then we see that we're the ones who are really set apart completely for a holy life in every respect. So this is what we saw last time. That God's faithful will flourish because they live in His presence and they live with His life as our standard. And that's what we aspire to. That's what we'll be held accountable for. That's what we'll repent toward. And when we can say to one another, if you're a saint, if you're a follower of Christ, you can say to those around you, look, I'm not perfect and I screw up every day, but you have the right to hold me accountable to the standard of Jesus Christ. 
You should be able to say that to your family, to your best friends, to your church, and those who know Christ in the workplace. So we've seen then that's the joy of being a Christian. We flourish in the presence of God. Now, let's look at verses 6 through 13. And we're going to see that God's warnings woo the wise. Okay, we're moving into this, this third section that we talked about a moment ago that has to do with Christ's final judgment vindicating the believer. Let's take a look at verses 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Okay, first of all, let's see that the first angel warns, Fear God, for the hour has come for judgment. Fear God. For the hour has come for judgment. Now, this is a, an amazing instruction. But I want you to notice, first of all, if you look in verse 6, this instruction is part of the eternal gospel. And it is given to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Do you understand that the, the gospel, part of the gospel, is fear God who's coming to judge? Uh, we don't like to think of it that way because it, sometimes it doesn't make us very popular to be proclaiming that God is going to come and judge. But the proclamation of the gospel involves this. And sometimes I think that it's missing in our communications today because we're, we're embarrassed by it. But you'll notice that when uh, John uh, the Baptist uh, goes preaching, he just says, flee from the wrath to come. That's a, in one, on one occasion, that's a summary of his message. That there's judgment coming and the, the word to the world is run from the judgment. And of course, where do you run? You run to Christ who forgives all your sins. So flee from the wrath to come. Believe the gospel. Repent, as Jesus said. Repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. That's the basic message of the gospel. And here it is. There's judgment coming. Now notice... Is it judgment coming only for those who have heard about Jesus? Is it judgment coming only for those who have committed the most wicked atrocities in the world? No. It's to every people, nation, language, tribe. The gospel goes to people who have never heard it. And the gospel includes 
fear God, His judgment is coming upon you. Say, wow, I didn't know. Nobody warned me. Yes, they did. You were made in His image and you have violated the way He made you. You were made in His image. You were given a conscience. And Paul teaches us in Romans 2 that every culture, every religious group, regardless of their background, all have consciences. And in every case, human beings have broken their own conscience. So regardless of whether they've heard the Gospel or not, regardless of whether they've ever heard of the Ten Commandments, they have commandments in their hearts, the Apostle Paul says, and they've broken them. Now, the commandments in their conscience are imperfect. Our consciences have to be perfected. But no matter what culture you're in, you have some sense of right and wrong by the way in which you were created by God. And you've broken it. So Paul says there are no innocent people. Those who have never heard the gospel, those who have never heard the Ten Commandments, those who have never had the opportunity to be exposed to the civilized world, or whatever, whatever you want to call it. There is no excuse, says the Bible. Now, we may not like that. That's very hard for us to deal with because we've had so many privileges in the West. It seems arrogant of us. It seems unkind and ungracious of us. But gentlemen, we've got to deal with the fact that the human race is fallen. And because they have broken the law of God, even in their own conscience, they're in deep trouble. This goes out to all the peoples, all the nations, all the tribes, all the languages of the world. And for that reason, then, the gospel must go out to all the world. Those of you at Second Presbyterian have just been through our World Missions Conference. We're reminded again, this message is for all the world. Every square inch of this world belongs to Jesus Christ. And it's our job to go proclaim it. Now, notice he says in light of his judgment that is coming, fear God. How often do you hear that from the pulpits of today? How often do you hear that in the schoolrooms of today? You know, kids, your number one obligation in life is to fear God. Now, why would that make sense for a school teacher to say that? Here's why. The Bible teaches that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, think about that. If you want to start out, we're step one in being a wise person. We're step one. Step one, fear God. <laughs> get, get that straight. Because you don't have a framework in which to put all of your learning unless you fear God. And the, the, the tragedy of our day, the way things are set up, that's the one thing that's a, the huge violation. That's the one sin in the school, system, in the school systems of today, uh, certainly the public schools and many of the private schools. Uh, you wouldn't want to talk about fearing God. I remember one time I was helping a, a private school develop their statement of religion, and, and uh, this phrase uh, was written in, and many of them objected. Fear God? Do we want to tell the children to fear God? Is that the way you want little children to think about God? Yes! <laughs> Why? Because that's who He is. He's fearsome. And let the little children know whom they're dealing with. Let them know He's awesome. He's powerful. He's holy. You don't mess with Him. You think your dad is powerful? Check this out. You know, the daddy of all dads. You know, the, the God of all gods. Let's, let's get in our minds who He is. And once you get that in your head, now you can learn 1 plus 1 equal 2 because He made it that way. And because the, the planets go around the, the sun, because He made it that way. And it makes sense because He made sense out of it. And He's bringing all of it to a grand conclusion. Fear God. Now, all knowledge and all spheres of Influence fall under that one principle. Fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. The psalmist says it. Solomon, the wisest man on the face of the earth, he said it. 
Solomon said, you want to know where my wisdom comes from? It starts with a fear of God. And he said to God, God, I, I've been made king, but I'm like a little child. I don't even know how to go in and out. I don't even know how to go to the bathroom. How am I going to be king? And God says, Solomon, that's a great start. You'll get wisdom. I'll give it to you. Because you asked me for it. Because you know you don't have it by yourself. And what we're trying to do is to prove that we have wisdom by ourselves. We'll just develop all these scientific innovations. We'll study everything to the nth degree. We'll figure everything out. And then we'll be like God if He exists. That's the thought. But here, John is seeing a vision and the angel says, Fear God, for the judgment is coming on all human knowledge and all human attempts to displace God. So let's begin with the fear of God. And you can look in Ecclesiastes, another book by Solomon. And there, you know, Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Uh, he says, you know, marriage is meaningless. Uh, friends are meaningless. Work is meaningless. Toil, toil, toil. What do you get out of it? You just end up leaving it to your children. What's the use? And just you go through this and it just sounds so depressing. And you get to the end of it and he says, so all has been considered. Here's the bottom line of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God means to worship Him, give Him His due, and it means to submit to Him, do His Word. And gentlemen, I'm telling you, if you will just simply be a worshiper and an obeyer, you're going to be fine. And so are your children. It doesn't matter what's happened in your life, how bad you've messed up, what sins you've committed. Just start today. Say, Lord, I want to be like a little child who doesn't know how to come in and go out. I'm going to be one who depends on you. I'm going to ask you to forgive all my sins. And I just want to fear you. I want to be your worshiper. And I want to do your word. I'm not going to worry about whether my name ends up in the newspaper, on the right side of being in the newspaper, or whether I make a lot of money, or whether I have a great job, or whether my kids go to the right colleges. Lord, I'm not going to worry about that. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man, says Solomon. And the Lord elevated Solomon. The Lord put Solomon in the place where Solomon was supposed to be. And the Lord put Barnabas where Barnabas was supposed to be, as a helper to Saul, to Paul. He'll put you where you're supposed to be once you bow down before Him and fear Him. This is the first thing the angel is saying. Fear God, the hour has come. And John is saying to the seven churches that are struggling. He's saying to men who are struggling, look, the judgment is already at work. That explains a lot of the chaos around you. It's coming to a conclusion. Just be sure you're on your knees worshiping Him and you're obeying Him and wait for Him with eager expectation. Now, the second angel warns, fallen is Babylon the Great. Basically, he's predicting what's going to be given to us in, in spades in uh, chapters 17 through 19. We're going to see Babylon really gets it uh, in the nose there. But you'll notice in verse 8, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So she's the great whore, the great prostitute, the great system of evil. And all the nations have been drinking her cup. And they've been getting, getting drunk on her cup. And, and what the second angel is saying, watch out, because all that so-called entertainment, all that wickedness, all that chaos is coming from one who has already been judged and has already fallen uh, definitively before God. God's already judged her. It's over. So why would you want to follow her? That just leads to death. And uh, so the, the second angel is warning 
at the same time that you fear God because He's the judge and the maker. He's made the heavens and earth, the first angel says. He's going to judge the heavens and the earth. Not only you fear Him because He's coming, but you flee from Babylon because she's already judged. So don't live your life in that world system. Get away from there. Flee the wrath that is to come. She's under judgment. Now, the third angel warns there's going to be torment or blessing. Now, let's look at this. The one who identifies with the beast will share uh, its fate. Look here. The first thing he's going to teach us in verses, uh, this should actually be 9 through 13, if you will. Uh, In 9 through 11, though, we see that the beast worshipers will be tormented. Look how he puts it. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, that means anyone who's devoted himself to this world system, the beast. Remember the the beast out of the sea was the the beast that was all the human systems of this world, whether they're political systems, corporate systems, other human social systems. And then, of course, the beast from the earth is the one who fuels it with with the heretical philosophies and theologies. But anyone who gives himself to that whole system, anyone who's trying to define his life in terms of worldly success, anyone who's trying to find his pleasure by sucking out of this life all he can get, anyone who gives his life over, sacrifices his life to devote himself to this, is going to face the following in verse 10. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury. So, notice, you're drinking the wine of Babylon. You're enjoying its fermentation. You're, you're enjoying its intoxications. You're enjoying, and this doesn't, gentlemen, I'm not making a comment, neither is John, about alcohol here. This is used as a symbol. It's used as a symbol of enjoying the elixir of this world order. And so you're, you're drinking that wine. You're enjoying those pleasures. You've given yourself to that lifestyle. And then he says, look, it's coming the day when you're going to drink another cup. It's going to be the cup of God's wrath. And, of course, we know that Jesus took that cup ultimately for all of his people. And that's the reason we don't drink it. Because Jesus drank the cup of wrath for us on the cross. But for those who don't have Christ in their place, they will pay the penalties of their sins with Babylon, the whore. They will pay the penalty for their own sins by drinking that cup. Now, notice he compares that cup to the cup of Babylon, if we read on, he says, He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. Okay, what he means there is, most of the time in drinking wine, you dilute it. Or at least in the, the ancient world, it would be diluted. What he's saying here, it's, it literally it says mixed unmixed, which means mixed unadulterated. No water, just wine. The full strength of His wrath. So in one case, you're enjoying some of the the delicacies of this world, at least you thought they were. You were involving yourself in them, and it was was cut. You weren't facing all the strength of that wine. Now you're going to face the full strength of the wine of God's wrath. So there's a warning here for those who give themselves to that lifestyle. And then notice what else he says. He will be tormented with burning sulfur. doesn't get pretty here, gentlemen in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. So there will be torment, the full strength of His wrath and burning sulfur. That's an image that I don't think any of us knows how to understand. An image of fire. 
an image of, of unbelievable pain. And the Lord is giving us a fair warning about the judgment that is coming uh, on those who have turned their back on God and on their own consciences and have turned toward this world order. And then read on. Not only will it be strong and painful, but it will be eternal. Look at verse 11. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. So he's clearly saying here that this is not a temporary torment where we face judgment and then we, we would want to be, have our lives extinguished because the pain would be so great. But it appears in this text, at least from this image, that that pain goes on and on and on. It's called the doctrine of eternal punishment. And once again, we're dealing with some very heavy things this morning. Uh, John is obviously dealing with these heavy things because we need to know them, because they're part of our salvation. Our salvation comes from the grace of God, but also from His judgments. And just as He judged Egypt when He delivered Israel, so He's going to judge this world when He delivers the saints. And part of our salvation will will be to see the awesome judgments of God against all evil. And one of the glories of that for us is not only that we're vindicated, but that the sin in us is completely judged and we're purged of it. So the awesome sanctity of the living God will cleanse the universe and cleanse us so that we are squeaky clean going into heaven and there are no viruses there, no germs. What I mean by that is no sin. It can't get in there. And we've been completely purged. Now, you know, if you're dealing with cancer, you'll take chemotherapy and radiation and you'll do all kinds of things, bone marrow transplants. You're trying everything you can to get rid of that wicked cell or whatever it is you scientists you know, could tell us about. You're trying to purge your body of all those cells so that it doesn't show up again. Uh, you know, in a day like today with all the colds going around, you know, I just picked it up two days ago. I was thinking the other last week, I was saying, man, that's really cool. You know, I've been around so many people with that awful cold. I had not one little sniffle. I shouldn't have said that <laughs> because it's not a squeaky clean world. It's just everywhere. We're all going to eventually, you know, get something. But when you get to heaven, God is going to purge everything out of there except for holiness and health and happiness. So his judgments are our salvation. He will purge everything by his judgment. So he's going to purge the earth. And if you've not given your life to him to be one who's being purged and preserved, you will be purged out. But then here we are seeing that the torment appears to be eternal. Now you say, why in the world would this be? Is it true? And I had one challenge me one time on this. And I believe me, I... I would, I'm the one who would look for loopholes. You know, it's like W.C. Fields one day. He was, he was very sick in bed, and, and one of his friends walked in, and W.C. was reading his Bible. His friend said, what in the world did you do in W.C.? And he said, looking for loopholes. <laughs> and, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm the kind of person that if I could find a loophole on this one, I'd, I'd hang my hat on it. But my problem is I'm not finding any loopholes here. And, and then, of course, once I don't find the loopholes, I'm saying, okay, Lord, my job is to love you for this to adore you for this, to worship you for this, to adore your wrath. If that's who you are, your wrath is right. Who am I to resent it? Who am I to be looking for loopholes? I just want to know you. And if this is who He is, your job is to know Him and love Him 
100%. Everything about him. And some things about him are harder to love because he's scary. That's the reason the angel said, fear God. He is scary. And if you're not ready to fear him, you're not going to know him because he's fearsome. So if you don't want to fear him, you're going to know part of him that you think you can get along with. You're going to know the parts of him that you think will get along with you. Oh, well, God, he must be a little bit like me. Maybe a better version of me. Maybe that's what God is like. That's what every man starts with. And it's flat wrong. You need to know God as he is. And then you need to become like him instead of making him like you. So in Matthew 25, you know, you have the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says about the, uh, he says about the sheep, then they will go away to eternal, I'm sorry, about the goats in verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The word eternal is the same. He says of the goats, eternal punishment. And of the lambs, eternal life. I don't know how you can get around that. And you say, Wilson, logically, how can this be? How can a loving God commit people to eternal torment? This is beyond me. Uh, And once again, if I were God, and I'm not, and that's the reason this book is here, so you won't get to know me, you'll get to know Him. If I were God, I would just extinguish the people. If If I felt that my justice had to be Exercised, I would just extinguish them. Put them out of their misery. Why doesn't God? I don't know, but I suppose it's this. That He made us in His image. He is eternal. He is infinite in His glory. And therefore, our commitment to obey Him is infinite in its gravity. When we violate the commandments of an infinitely glorious God, the only just response would be an infinite payment. You see, this is, this is the danger of being created by an infinite God. You then owe Him infinite obedience. And if you can't render that through having someone else do it for you, which is what I did and many of you did, we got Jesus Christ to do it for us. If you don't have someone to render that infinite obedience for you, then you've got to do it. If you don't have someone to pay that infinite price of committing a sin against an infinite God, then you have to pay an infinite price yourself. Gentlemen, these are the grave things we're dealing with as creatures made by an infinite God. So we need to fear God. We need to realize the business we're in. This is awesome. And the consequences of disobeying Him and turning your back on Him are infinitely grave. Therefore, whatever temporary inconvenience you undergo or undertake as a result of being a messenger of the gospel is for sure worth someone's infinite salvation. Don't you think? Worth their eternal salvation. You go ahead and suffer a little while. You go ahead and pay the price. You go ahead and give a little bit more money than you thought you were going to. You go ahead and and suffer and sacrifice more than you planned. You go ahead and lay your life down. Your life is not worth keeping someone out of an infinitely glorious place for eternity. Your life would be worth a whole lot more if you used it to purchase the eternal salvation of another person. So those of you involved in the mission of the church, you're using your life in the most respectable manner possible because you're trading in a finite, temporary lifestyle here for the eternal salvation of other people. And believe me, one day you'll find out how glorious that really is. 
So that's the problem we're facing in chapter 14. The third angel is warning about eternal torment. And notice that their torment, the smoke rises forever and ever. You see that in verse 11? You'll be in heaven and part of the experience will be to see the the smoke rising up as a result of God's judgment. Now, I don't know whether this vision is literal in terms of our eternal experience, but John is showing us this vision to explain that that is the principal reality, that they will be in torment forever. And notice what the description of their, of their circumstances in 11b, no rest, day or night. No rest. You know, rest is a theological principle. And for those of us who have a hard time resting, taking proper vacations, having a night out with a bride or with a girlfriend or with a child or with a parent, getting enough sleep at night, you know, our sleep has been going down when our technology is supposed to be purchasing for us more and more leisure. Our sleep, our average hours of sleep are dramatically dropping over the past 40 years with all of our technological advances. Does that make sense? There's something about the system that is not completely good. We're being caught up in it and we're not sleeping. Why? Rest is a theological principle. You remember when the children of Israel went into Canaan, God said to them, and I will give you rest from your enemies. I'll give you a cessation of hostility from around you. You'll be able to enjoy the land. You'll have rest. Rest is the idea of going into God's promised land. And of course, we're going toward our eternal rest. Latin word, requiem. We're going toward our rest. It's a theological principle that we trust in God for our defense. We trust in God for our provision. That's rest. He takes care of us. That's the reason Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now think about this. So, if we are really trusting the Lord for our provisions, if we believe that fearing Him, worshiping Him, abiding by His commandments, He is going to provide for us. And His commandments include working hard. Six days you shall labor on the seventh, you shall have rest. If we're obeying His commandments and working hard and also taking our rest, He will provide for us. You see, there's a theology to the rhythm of life. Therefore, I'm going to take a day off once a week. I'm going to be a Sabbatarian. I'm going to follow the principles of Genesis 1 and 2 because I trust God. I'm going to sleep at night. I'm not going to stay up until the wee hours of the morning. There's something theologically wacky about what the young adults are now doing, staying up till 2 in the morning until they get their first job and get up at 6 in the morning. And some of them keep that up as long as they can. There's something theologically wacky about it. It's out of sorts. They're not trusting the Lord. They're afraid they're going to miss something, so they have to stay up till 2 in the morning. You're not going to miss anything. If you have Christ, you're going to miss nothing. There's a rest. I don't have to be involved in everything. I don't have to know everybody. I don't have to be at every party. I don't have to be at every this, that, or the other. I've got Christ. There's rest. Now, notice what happens to the one who follows Babylon. No rest. 
You can't ever get enough. You can't ever earn enough. You can't ever be popular enough. You can't ever drink enough, have enough sex, have enough pleasure, take enough trips, see enough of the world. I know people who are non-Christians who tell me, you know, I think the joy of life is just seeing as many places as you can see. And getting around this world and understanding the cultures. Gentlemen, look, I enjoy doing that too. And I've gotten a marvelous education through being involved in the mission of the church and living in huts and living in under trees and getting to know peoples in two-thirds world and all around the world. And truly, it's a great education. But gentlemen, I'm telling you something. This world is coming to an end. So I don't put all my trust in how much of this world I can know. It's like, how much of this ash pile can I really become intimately familiar with? What difference does that make? There's a new world coming. And I will be with Him. And I'm at rest. I don't have to know all this. And I don't have to know everything. And I don't have to stay on the Internet night and day being sure I master every little factoid that comes down the line. I'm at rest. I know Him. And knowing Him, He will show me how to lead my life in a way that ministers to other people and fulfills the duty He's given me to do in this life. And that's what I'm supposed to do. But for the wicked... Isaiah says, no rest. Gentlemen, if you're in Christ, do you realize the gift of rest is phenomenal? And nobody has it but you. Because nobody has an eternal security that they're in the arms of Jesus right now and that's exactly where they're going and they have all the equipment they need to face anything in this life with rest. So, you'll see the judgment that is for those who commit themselves to this world which is under the judgment of God, which can never satisfy the human soul. No rest day or night. And that begins now. This is not just the eternal torment. It's now. No rest day or night. No rest right through eternity. No rest. For you, keep reading. Look at verse 13. Uh, verse 12. This calls, and this is the key message here for us, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. So he's saying, look guys, here it is. If that's the judgment of the infinitely glorious and eternal and everlasting God on those who turn their back on Him, this calls for us to shape up and have patient endurance and wait for the end and live for the glory of God. Wake up, he's saying. This is a call on our lives. You're being shown something right now about the future that everybody doesn't know. They may know in their consciences that they're doomed. Just like the devil knows for sure he's doomed. And in the conscience of the wicked spirit, there is a sense of futility, for sure. But we're being shown this in living, vivid colors so that we wake up and live for what's right. He says, we need patient endurance. We want to obey God's commandments. We want to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you change sides now? Why would you switch allegiances? Remain faithful to Him. Obey His commandments and endure patiently because something very special is happening. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And the Spirit talks back. Yes, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Gentlemen, The contrast could not be starker. The Spirit now gets in on it. There's a voice from an angel in heaven. And the Spirit of God, the living God, can't hold Himself back. He says, yes, that's right. They're blessed, those who die in the Lord. That's the reason the psalmist says, 
precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Why? Because they are exalted. They had no idea how great it is to go from this life to the next. If they did, they'd be tempted to commit suicide. It's great for them. Precious in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because He now reflects His eternal glory upon those who are in His presence who have been perfected, who have been glorified. Now, His glory radiates through heaven on their faces. It's precious in the sight of the Lord. Blessed are they who die in the Lord. You have nothing to fear. If you know Christ, you graduate into the church triumphant. And it's greater than anything you could possibly imagine. The contrast here is absolutely stark. And the Spirit says, yes, for they shall find their perfect rest. They've had rest in this life, but it's been attacked. They've been not, maybe not physically refreshed. Maybe they've not been emotionally refreshed. In their spirits, they had rest, but they were attacked constantly. Their bodies were attacked. Their psyches were attacked. But now they get to heaven and it's all intact. And they have complete and total rest. They will rest from their labors. See, when you, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, what happens is you receive rest. Why? You cease your self-justifying labors. You cease to try to perform to get acceptable with the Father, which is what so many sons do. Always try to please their Father. Half of us feeling as though we never pleased our fathers. And so our whole life is defined by trying to please our Father. And you get to heaven and your Father is pleased. And you find that you didn't have to earn it. You rest from your labor. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are learning to rest from your own performances. Because you can't perform well enough. You'll never please the Father on your own performance. But you rest from your labors because you receive the labor of Jesus Christ who labored for you. He lived a perfect life so that you would have a perfect record. He labored on the cross taking the punishment that was owed you on Himself so that you're set free. You've got rest. You can experience that right now in your soul. Rest. And then when you get to heaven, you will have rest holistically. Your whole body will be at rest. Your psyche will be at rest. Your spirit will be at rest. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their, labor, their labors. For, he says, this is an interesting phrase, their deeds will follow them. And you say, ooh, I think that's going to hurt. <laughs> Thinking about some of my deeds. Lord, I don't want those deeds to follow me. You just leave them right back down here in the ash heap if you don't mind. He's not talking about your sinful deeds. He's talking about those puny little things that we do. You know, like, you know, give our tithes or give our offerings or give permissions or lead someone to Christ. These puny little things that we do that we think are so great, they're all mixed with sin. All of our, our motives are always mixed motives. And I, I never had a perfect motive in my life. I know what I'm supposed to do and I ask the Lord to give me grace to do it, but I, I never can get my soul in a state that I have a perfect motive. It's always a mixed motive. You want someone to preach or teach with perfect motives, you'll never be taught. You know, anybody who says they get up and they're perfectly egoless, they just lied. <laughs> they just lied. So we all, no matter what you do today, you're going to have mixed motives. But here's what the Father does in His love for you. He takes those mixed motive, motivated deeds. He sanctifies them and gives you credit for them as though Jesus did them. Things you've completely forgotten. Deeds of kindness. Words of encouragement that are years back there and you can't even remember them. I had someone come up to me just the other day and said, do you remember what you said to me? I said, gosh, I don't remember that at all. You sure I said that? Doesn't even sound like me. Yeah, you said it. Well, people will remember more than you remember, but gentlemen, God forgets nothing. 
that's in your favor. He forgets everything that's not in your favor if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, He forgets nothing that He can credit you with. So you're coming to heaven, and in your train are all these mixed motive deeds that now you're given perfect credit for, and you're crowned for them. I'm telling you, in the smallest, darkest little recesses of this world, when you do a kind deed and you give a cup of cold water to someone, it is though you gave that cold water to Jesus Christ Himself. And He's going to be there to reward you. I promise you that. That's what the text is saying. The Spirit says, yes, their deeds will follow them. They're going to be blessed. They're going to have rest. They're going to have glory when they get to heaven. And they'll be crowned for the least little things they did in the name of Christ. So the saints are blessed. And I put there some verses that uh, parallel that. So here is the judgment of God. And J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, addresses this issue about the judgment of God. And he says, you know, some people really shy away from the judgment of God. But he says, I want to ask you, what would a God be like who made no difference between Stalin and Hitler and his saints? Would that be a perfection of God? Would that not be an imperfection of God if He were indifferent to sin? God is not indifferent. He's very careful about sin. And He does make a distinction among human beings. And so Packer closes his argument by saying this, the final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that He has committed Himself to judge the world. So your God, the God who is the one True and living God is a God who judges evil and who rewards His people, not because they deserve it, but because He has purchased the merit by the death and the life of His own Son. So we will not break the law of God. As Michael Cassidy said this past weekend, for those of us who are here at Second, he said, you know, you never break the law of God, you just illustrate it. He says, if you jump out of the Empire State Building, you don't break the law of gravity, you illustrate it. And that's exactly what's going to happen. If we violate the law of God, then we will be the ones who are ultimately destroying ourselves. God's servants swing the sickle. If we look at verses 14 through 20, we see this. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like the son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to, to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. So the Son of Man harvests the righteous in great glory in God's timing and over all the earth. So the Son of Man is going to come and yes, He's the judge, but he also, He's the harvester. He's going to, when the earth is ripe, that is all the saints are ready to be harvested, the Son of Man comes and sickles and takes all of His saints home. That's the Son of Man's job. Well, look about the angel. There's another angel, verse 17, who came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes on the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia which happens to be the length of the nation of Israel at that time. So he's saying that the, the angel will come, just like the death angel in Egypt, to deliver Israel. The death angel will come and harvest the wicked. 
Now, 1,600 stadia is about 181 miles, which is the length of Canaan from Dan to Beersheba. So you see, Christ is going to reap the saints, bring them to himself, the death angel, as it were, if I can call him that, will reap the wicked and destroy them. And blood, it's going to be a bloody sight. It's very bloody. It's very graphic. And that's for a reason. It's real. And it's going to happen. And we need to be ready for it. Lastly, God's saints sing of His sovereignty. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 15. I saw in heaven another great marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Here you have the great consummation, which is a song of the saints. They see the end in sight. They can see the seven plagues coming, the end of God's judgment that we'll study next week. They stand by His throne by the sea of glass and they just break out in a song of worship and praise. And notice that they say, Who will not fear you? They are told by the angel, Fear God. And the saints see how fearsome He is. And they say, Lord, who would not fear you? Because you're a great king. Because your deeds are wonderful. And because you have saved your people. Okay, so what? First of all, stop whining. We win. Cut it out. Stop the whining. Stop complaining. Stop the bitching and moaning. You win. What are you complaining about? Anytime you find yourself complaining about something in this life, just say, hang on just a minute. I just read the book of Revelation. You tell me, please, sir, what do I have to complain about? You don't have anything to complain about. It's awesome. Who would not fear God? Who would not worship Him who knows the end of the story? Pick up your harp and warm up your voice. Let's get it going, boys. We've got a song to sing. It can start right now. As soon as you know where you're going, as soon as you know how glorious this thing is, you pick up the harp. The greatest tragedy, says A.W. Tozer, is that God made us to sing. God made us to play the harp. And man has dropped the harp. Pick it back up. Thirdly, your lifestyle matters. Your lifestyle reflects what you believe. Your lifestyle reflects where you're going. Your lifestyle is a reflection of your view of the end times. You are showing what you really believe by whether you tell the truth and whether your sexual morality comports with what the Bible says. You're revealing what you really believe, whether God is fearsome or not and whether His judgments are true. And lastly, get the Word out. The Word is, you really need to choose today. Because we're told we do not know when He's coming. We know from what John is telling us that all the things in this world show that the wrath of God is at work even now. And the judgments of God are in play right now. And the end time, the end of the end could be at any moment. So let's be sure we've chosen and chosen clearly. Let's be sure we encourage others to do the same. Let's pray. Father, it is a great song you've given us to sing. The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.